Well, I don't know if any of you were around in 1917. I wasn't. But in 1917, in Russia, there's a lot of turmoil going on. It happened to be the year of the beginning of the Russian Revolution. Now, under the czars, life was not all that great. But one thing you could depend on, that it was steady. It was predictable. And you knew what was coming. But when the revolution came, things were turned upside down. Everything just went every which direction, and there was no peace. Nobody knew what was going to happen in the nation. And in this little village of Anatevka, and this little home, there was a little revolution going on there too. And if any of you have ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, Oh, I'm sorry, roof. Fiddler on the roof. I got this northern thing about a roof, and I got to get a roof. Fiddler on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, there was a man there. by the. He was sort of the head of the house, you know. His name was Tevya. And Tevya was in big turmoil. Because things were not just changing in his country, but the traditions were changing as well. The traditions of the Jewish people, even in his little village. Now, he was a milkman, and I love that movie. I've watched it several times, and uh, I, I get the greatest enjoyment. I had no idea. First time I ever saw it, I was in college. You know, I wasn't living for the Lord then. I had no clue what a fiddler on the roof was. Um, it took me a while to learn all about that, but I finally did. Um, he had three girls. If you're not familiar with the movie, he had three daughters, and um, one was approaching marriageable age. And um, I, I'm not going to read this whole poem that they sang about tradition, I'm going to read part of it for you so you kind of get the, the gist of what I'm talking about. But there's one in, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, of course, you wouldn't be familiar with it. But there's one song they sing, and it's called Tradition, you know, and it's all about the Jewish traditions. And uh, Tevye says, tradition, 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 and so on. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? The papa. The papa. It's tradition. Then his wife Golda and all the other mamas, you know, they, they sing. Well, who must know the way to make a proper home, a quiet home, and a kosher home? And who must raise the family and run the home so papa's free to read the holy books? It's the mama, the mama. That's tradition. And then finally, we're not finally yet, we got the sons. Now, there's, they don't have any sons, but the sons have to sing. You know, they have a part in it. So at three, I started Hebrew school. At 10, I learned a trade. I hear they picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. The son, the son, tradition. 
That's just the way it was. It was tradition. And then finally, the daughters. And the daughters say this, And who does mama teach to mend and tend and fix, preparing me to marry? Whoever papa picks. How about that, single girls? <laughs> Would you want papa to pick your bride? Well, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you'd say, no way. <laughs> um, he's tall and handsome, says the matchmaker. <laughs> that is from side to side. I'm supposed to laugh right now. This was the time right there. Yeah. Okay, good. You got it. You got it. So the daughters say, it's the daughter. It's the daughter. It's tradition. Well, that's what this passage we're going to deal with this morning is about. Tradition. And this is what Jesus was confronted with by the Pharisees and the scribes coming up from Jerusalem as a party to meet with him and confront him over his teaching and the practice of his disciples. In chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, that Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now I'm just going to read through the passage this morning. Uh, hopefully that will help me get done on time. But I want to point out a few key things here that will help, I think, open the passage up. Enable us to see with better eyes what is going on here and what Jesus is dealing with. Now, in verse 2, you see, well, actually in verse 1, I wanted to, to point out there um, uh, this, this tradition that eating, um, um, the eating of the bread with unwashed hands and they found fault and so on. Um, it says this unwashed hands. Now, it's a word that some of us are familiar with. It's ah and then nipto. And we look back at John chapter 13 and the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus. And you remember studying that, how that the word nipto meant to wash just a part of the body. And if you'll look the definition up, you'll see that it means to wash typically the hands, the feet, or your face. You know, just, just part of your body. So, you see that's what he's talking about, first of all, is that when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, then they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they nip-toe their hands in a special way. Now that little phrase, a special way, I doubt if any of you who have a different Bible, whatever you're reading this morning, has it the same way. The King James says oft, or often. They wash their hands often. Uh, the New King James, as I just read, says in a careful way. The New American says carefully. Uh, the English Standard Version says properly. The NIV says ceremonial washing. And the Holman Bible says ritually. And then Young's 
who is a very literal translation, says, wash to the wrist. That is, to wash the hands all the way up at least to the wrist. Now, when he goes on to say in verse 4, when they come, well, excuse me, then he says, holding the tradition of the elders. Tradition. Nothing according to Scripture, just tradition. That which was handed down orally for centuries, all the way down to Jesus' day. So then, this was nothing more than what was passed on. Now later on, these traditions got written down in, in the Mishnah. And so they had it written, but not not to this, this point in time. Now if you look at verse 4, it says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, interestingly enough there, or maybe not so interesting to you by now, it's a different word. It's baptismo. Now, I know that in many passages in the New Testament, and you know as well that the word baptizo is oftentimes just transliterated as baptize. But here's a place where it's really translated much more correctly. It's to wash. And of course, we know the literal meaning means to dip or to immerse. So why am I pointing these things out? Well, I'm pointing it out for this one reason. Because it was tradition. It wasn't because their hands were dirty. It wasn't because the bodies of those who went to the marketplace, and the Pharisees in particular, were dirty. We're talking about ceremonial washing. We're talking about a ritual washing, a ritual bath that they would enter into because of their fear of being defiled. They might have touched some unclean food. They may have bumped up against a Gentile. It's hard to tell. I know I've shared with some of you here uh, before a friend, a Jewish believer, who even today, he's a believer, but when you shake hands, he won't run to the bathroom real quick, but he'll quietly find a moment when nobody's around and he'll run in and wash his hands. Now, what do they do? Well, this, this holding their hands in a special way was in a fist. And there was a particular way to do it. My main thing here for us to see is tradition. It was ceremonial defilement that they were concerned with. So when they asked Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? You can't use this verse with your kids to say, hey, see, that's in the Bible. Kids, go wash your hands. This was ceremonial defilement he was speaking of here. Now, probably a good idea to wash them anyway, but... Matter of fact, when you finish reading verse 4, you say, you'll see there it says, And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitcher... By the way, the baptizing, same word. The immersing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches... 
And so you see then that the whole picture presented to us is just one of ceremony, of ritualism. Now, in verse 5, he says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders or the fathers? That's our Father's Day message right there. According to the tradition of the fathers, the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. They don't go through the ceremonial washings like we do. And the other Jews, well, Jesus finally gets his opportunity now to answer them. So in verse 6, he makes his reply. And he quotes from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter chapter 29, he says in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. Now there's a couple of things we should notice there. The word well. The word well is just very interesting. It's um, in this context, it means something like, you know, he said this in such a, a beautiful and appropriate way. It is written about you, the hypocrites. There's an article in front of the word hypocrites. Now, why is that so important? Well, I want to read the rest of this verse, quoting from Isaiah first, and then we'll deal with the hypocrites. Because he says, now this is Isaiah speaking, of course. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, back in Isaiah's day, they weren't a whole lot different than you and I today. We do the same thing in our believing assemblies today. We get to the point where sometimes we go through the motions of going to church, reading our Bible, praying, getting baptized, saying our marriage vows, and all kinds of other things that we do, even in our daily conversation and fellowship with fellow believers. We use you know, spiritual phrases that are just vain. You mean, what do you mean vain? Well, just in an empty, worthless, useless way. It didn't mean a thing to you or to to those, well, maybe to those around you, but to you in particular or to me. So, Isaiah was speaking against his own people who had drifted away from the Lord. They had stopped worshiping him in the proper manner. They were now just drifting along, going through the motions. Well, they weren't going to church. They were going up to the temple. They were going into the temple court area. They were bringing their sacrifices 
and making their offerings to the Lord on a regular basis, bringing their tithes in, some, not all. Malachi said, some of you are failing in that area. Not everybody brought their tithes. But many that were, were just going through the motions of being good Jews. And we find that we do the same thing. Now, the reason Jesus brings all this out, uh, he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, you lay aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things, and he said, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Now, why did they develop these traditions? Why did they even do it in, from the beginning? Why did they make all these rules about things you needed to do? Well, the way I understand it, and I got people here that can either back me up or they can correct me, whichever. <laughs> um, uh, but I would explain it this way. You got the Torah. You got the law. And they were so respectful of the law that they built a hedge around the law of these different rules. And as long as you could keep these rules and you didn't interfere with those, then you could be sure that you weren't you know, penetrating through those to the law and breaking the law. The only problem was is that over time, those traditions began to contradict contradict the scriptures and in effect as Jesus just told them you laid aside the commandments of God you have rendered them of no effect they have no power in your life and the scriptures are just irrelevant to you so you reject the commandments of God he gives them an illustration in verse 10. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, well, now that, that's, this is it. I just can't imagine when the power of God was coming out of the lips of Jesus when he says, but you said, what guilt a person would feel. But you say, he says, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Now, a Corban was just a, a gift that was devoted to God. It, probably most of the time we would think of money. But if it was devoted to God... And there arose a need where your, the parents needed help. Then, in essence, the son was saying, I'm sorry, mom, dad, can't help you. This over here is devoted to God, and that's where it's going. It's, got, it's, it's, it's just a sacred money right here. It's got to go to God. I can't help you. And you see the strictness and the literalness? I mean, these kind of things make me think back to the keeping of the Sabbath. Because what did Jesus say about the Sabbath? He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
There comes a point in time when certain things override and become more important than your tradition. And so that's what he's telling them. You've made this thing of no effect. You make, in verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you've handed down, and many such things you do. What were the rest of them? Didn't matter. This one illustration was simply to point out the fact that this is what you are doing, this is what you are guilty of, and you've stepped on the word of God, as it were, and you've taken the power of God away by rejecting it. And that is rejection, by the way, to ignore God's word. So finally then, finally, now he's going to tell them in verse 14, this is what real defilement is. You're afraid about getting defiled? You want to go through your ceremonial washings? You're afraid to touch something out in the marketplace? Afraid you might be ceremonially unclean? Let me, let me, I'm putting this in my own words, of course, but it's like Jesus said, let me tell you what real defilement is here, guys, okay? And so he goes on to tell them about it. Verse 14, he called all the multitude to himself. Now, this is an interesting phrase to me. Here you have the leading religious leaders of the day in Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, standing there. And um, then it would be like you and me, I guess, standing there. And so he calls, calls us over. It's like he's saying to them, these guys aren't getting it, so I'm going to explain it to you. These religious leaders, they're not picking up on what I'm trying to tell them. So he called them all over to himself. And he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. Now for you and me, it might be like... Well, I don't understand that. I don't know how to turn this dumb computer on. So you call your grandkids over and they teach you how to do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> so I don't know how to do this. Well, let me show you. I think I, did I, I don't know if I told you about <laughs> the other day I was trying to play this game. with, And I try to stay far away from that thing, but uh, especially when my grandkids are around. But... Owen wanted to play a game. So I'm going, okay. So he goes in there and he gives me this square screen. Well, it's got some buttons on it and stuff. And he just kind of throws it in your lap and says, here you go. I said, Owen, you got to show me how to use this. So he goes over and he says, well, this does this and this and this. And you push on that and that makes it go forward. These make it go up and down. And, and then he throws it at you and says, okay. And he goes over there and he goes, proceeds to just whip the daylights out of me. And he wins every game. I said, Owen, oh, come back here and do this real slow. Let, let your pop try to understand that. And he goes, well, it goes, this, 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 this. And then he went, boom, and just threw it in my lap. And then he went right back to playing. He's five years old. Or is he six now? He, he, he just put it, I, I gave up. I just said, okay, I'll just push the button when I can. And he destroyed me, of course. Well, here he says, hear me, everyone, and understand. Hear me. 
There is, now listen, this is it. This is the crux, verse 15. All of this whole passage turns on this one verse. Because he says, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Now, probably to me, the most interesting word in that whole verse is the word C-A-N, can. It's from that word dunamis, which we know means power or ability. And so he's really, what he's trying to tell us here is there, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside that has the power or the ability to defile him. It can't do it. It's the things, he says, which come out of the man that defiles him, that makes it not ritually defiled, but genuinely defiled, in need of cleansing, true cleansing from inside. Now he goes on to say, of course, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We know that expression. If you have the spiritual demeanor and the capacity to comprehend spiritual things, then you will grasp what I'm trying to tell you. And so then he goes on to tell them then, explain this a little more in detail after they get in this house, because in verse 17 it says they entered a house, and even his disciples were struggling with this whole thing, and they asked him about this, this parable, and... Um, He begins to explain it to him. He says, are you thus without understanding also in verse 18? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? He's just basically, he's doing a lot like what a good teacher will do or a preacher. He restates maybe just a little bit different way what he just said. So he says, do you not perceive? Do you not get it? Do you not understand or see, or as the word here is, perceive, that what goes into the man is not what defiles him. Now, he gives the explanation for it in verse 19. And this makes it very simple. He says, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. Now, that sets the whole thing in its proper perspective. You know, what we take in is not that which defiles us. So it's not alcohol, drugs, fried food. (laughs) It's not, not okra and fried green tomatoes. Don't do it. These things don't defile us. They may not be good for you. They may not be good for the body, but they do not render you defiled. Why? Because defilement is a case of the heart. Defilement is an issue of the heart. And what you take in bypasses the heart. It goes into the stomach. And he says it passes out, and that's the end of that. 
And then there's a little comment at the end of verse 19. Thus purifying all foods. In other words, even at this point, early in Jesus' ministry, he was letting them know that all the things that you were accustomed to in the law of Moses were not there for the purpose of making sure you didn't get defiled ceremonially or any other way. It was to teach you the issues of the heart. So consequently, then in verse 20, he says, It's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, this is where the issues lie. It's what and what comes out of a man. Well, he names all these different things here. These are the things that come out of us. And interestingly enough, it's these things that come out of us then, that are then translated into action and into deeds. And then we do them. So the point of the whole matter is, is that every wicked deed that men do had a beginning point, a starting place. And it all began right here. Now, I wanted to read something to you um, from Isaiah you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to, well, well, I guess you would want to turn there maybe because I'm going to turn there. Isaiah chapter uh, 1. Sometimes you read these passages to me, you, you just think you will sound like you're just reading the New Testament. The way he's dealing with, these, with his own people. In verse 4, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. Paul wasn't, he didn't really talk quite like that, did he? But Isaiah was pretty bold. He says, They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again and revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. And then over in verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. You give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. By the way, you need to note there, he's not talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah at the southern end of the Dead Sea. He's talking about Israel. You are Sodom. You are Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? That is, when you come into the the court area of the temple and you trample it down with all these sacrifices He says, bring no more futile or worthless sacrifices. Furthermore, incense is an abomination to me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and so on. He says, and he goes on down, look at verse 16. In view of all this, he says, wash yourselves 
make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And then we'll take the time to read a couple other passages here. Um, over in um, Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are, the, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Then over in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. As to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And then Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, the writer tells us there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Figures of speech, speaking about the inner man, And how to avoid being defiled. They were concerned, the Pharisees and the scribes, with their external issues of being defiled by getting too near or touching something. And they had to go through this ceremonial washing to make sure everything before God was okay. And they could go on living life and feel like they were righteous and fit before God. Jesus told his disciples while he was teaching them up on a mountain one time, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Remembering that the issues of the heart is the key will cause you and me when we walk before the Lord and we seek to serve Him to be sure that my thoughts are not ones of what did Jesus call them back here in Mark chapter 7? Murders, adulteries, fornications. He calls them Um, evil things. He says they are... um, Oh, got the wrong page here. He says they are thefts. You steal. 
you covet, you do all kinds of wickedness. By the way, and you can say literally here, you do all kinds of wickedness because the first six of these things in this list are plural. You don't see it in the Greek, or in the Greek, in the English, because you don't see it as wickednesses or covetousnesses, but they're still plural nonetheless. So he's simply saying that all of these kinds of things that you do, along with deceit and lewdness and, and evil eye and blasphemy and pride and foolishness, all of these things begin in your heart. So the moment you find yourself thinking about these things, that's when you're headed down the wrong path. Because before long, it'll turn into an action. And then you will have brought it to its ultimate fulfillment. But to even think these things, Jesus said, brings defilement. I don't know about you, but I could just imagine a Pharisee and a scribe listening to Jesus teach these things. Now, of course, they were off the scene. They were in the house now. And he's teaching them to his disciples. But his disciples knew all about what the, what the Pharisees and the scribes taught. They knew what the traditions were. But Jesus was setting something wholly new before them. Something new to their ears. It wasn't new. I, could, I, I wish I could have gone and read about 20 or 30 other verses from the Old Testament dealing with this very topic. It was only new to them because they weren't accustomed to what the Old Testament taught. The religious leaders were unfaithful shepherds and they didn't teach them according to the ways, the proper ways. And so he closes with this verse, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, of course, we understand that defile a man there is a kind of a generic sense, defiles people. It's not talking about just, just the men. But I do want to take advantage of that and say, dads, this is a good time to be very introspective and take a look at your own heart and examine it. See where you are. I don't know if you've ever been put into a position where somebody offended you and they came to you for forgiveness. Some deep, deep thing. And you had a choice to make. You could hold them to the letter of the law and say, well, you did this, you said this, and therefore. Or you could stop and reflect for a moment, and I'm only saying this because it happened to me a long time ago. You know, and I had to, I, I forgave the person. Do you know why? Because <laughs> I just looked at this, 
I didn't look at it, but I knew it was here. And I said, you may not have done what this person did to you, but you thought it. So how can I hold the letter of the law to them? I'm just as guilty. So I forgave. And we're still friends today. You know, I could I could have cut off all ties, severed relationship, said, you're out of my life, don't want nothing to do with you. But that, that's, that's not where we're going here. That's not what Jesus is aiming at. It's to let us know that these things emanate from within in our own heart. And it's up to us to deal with them. It is up to us to recognize where these things are. And that I can have a pure heart. If I just face up to my own inadequacies. If I just face up to the fact that I am just as prone to do these things right here. That I have done them in my own heart as my brother or my sister over here who has carried that same thought out to fruition and actually completed the act. Whether it was adultery, fornication, or murder, or theft, or coveting, or any of these other sins, I can be just as guilty but I can also have a pure heart. I can confess those things. I can acknowledge them before the Lord. And I can deal with them. And daily, we have to recognize that fact. Daily, we have to know that I am just as capable as the guy sitting across the way from me or driving that car down the road that ticks me off or anybody else or my fellow my fellow believer that sits next to me in the pew, I'm just as capable of anything that they do. Seek to have an undefiled heart. Seek to have a heart of purity, of wholesomeness, wholeness. That brings delight. To our Heavenly Father. That's what He wants from us. He could care less, really, about the fact that you came to Sunday school every year this year and didn't miss a day. That's way down here on the bottom of the list, if it even makes the list. So let's seek to be dads. And fathers that our kids can look up to and be proud of. But let's also seek to be Christians, believers, that our Heavenly Father is pleased with. That He can look upon us and say, that's, that's the kind of person I approve of. I put my hand on Him. I'm going to extend my favor to that one and grace Him. And show him my love. And he will. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for...
the words of Jesus, the things that you sent him to teach us and to tell us about how to live life, about how to be what we ought to be as Christians, how we ought to prepare ourselves for that coming day when we will meet you at your judgment seat. I pray, Father, that we would have hearts that are pure, hearts that are ready, hearts that are true. We will thank you and we will praise you because we've been faithful and because you then will be faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.